morning, it's my great pleasure to introduce Jackie Conrad. She is first and foremost an RN for our Nursing Grand Rounds. She is also a registered corporate coach and leadership coaching specialist. She has 25 plus years of nursing leadership experience, 10 years as a chief nursing officer. She has a bachelor's of nursing from St. Xavier University, a master's in business administration from Olivet Nazarene University and is also a Team Steps Master Trainer. She's here today to talk with us about her passion, which is mobility and moving patients, which ultimately prevents them from falling. So please join me in welcoming Jackie Conrad. Thank you, Mary Catherine, for inviting me to be here with you and to talk about something that I'm really passionate about because I'm a rehab nurse by training and um, I focused on the spinal cord injury population and I, I really love working with challenging patients and my whole um, thought process as I've been a nurse has always been about um, taking challenges and, and turning them into opportunities and really helping individuals grow and blossom and regardless of what their barriers are. And as a rehab nurse, I'm, I'm a little concerned um, and distraught about the um, epidemic of immobility that's been caused um, in hospitals. And I think I can, we can trace this back to 2007 um, and I've got three thought-provoking articles for you that are just one-pagers that um, might stimulate some fresh thinking for you around falls. This first article um, talks about CMS when they started penalizing hospitals in 2007 for falls uh, injuries related to falls. You would think that that would have caused us to get better at reducing falls with injuries, but since that time, the, the um, progress has not been made. We've been flat. So even with the thought of penalties, the, the results have been flat. Um, and it's created this tension um, about promoting mobility because we've, we took putting patients and keeping them in bed as the primary means to keep them safe. And that created a tension because patients don't like to be um, kept in bed. Um, another um, thought-provoking article is about uh, bed alarms and how they are a really easy intervention, but there's really no evidence supporting that they reduce falls. Even when we are 100% perfect with executing the alarms and turning them off and turning them on and, and everything, it still is not an effective strategy. Although it may be part of your toolkit, but we're realizing that the bed alarms cause a lot of false alarms and that can really be a big dissatisfier for staff and for patients. Um, I know technology is improving, but um, it's, it's an intervention that we've leaned upon quite heavily and one of the things that I think is a, um, a, a sad situation, and I don't think AHRQ meant to do this, but when AHRQ created a post-fall huddle form, they put on that form, was the bed alarm on, yes or no? And that almost implies that it should have been on. And so how many times have nurses checked this off and said, no, the bed alarm wasn't on, oh, maybe that would have saved my patient from falling. Um, it gives us the illusion that we're doing something, but the evidence really isn't there. A person that really makes sense um, in light of all of uh, 
this information that I'm sharing is Francis Healy. Francis Healy is a, um, a nurse researcher in the, in, uh, the United Kingdom. And she's a brilliant um, researcher, and she studied their entire um, population of falls because they have a national health system. And she um, is just a, a brilliant person to network with, and I, I got to have a couple conversations with her about things that are emerging that are kind of before the evidence. So when I'm sharing today, I'm gonna share with you what's in the literature, but I'm also gonna share with you what I have seen um, being out in the field. Um, as an improvement advisor, I've been working on falls, caudy, and pressure injuries, and talking to a lot of hospitals, um, doing a lot of site visits since 2012. So some of these things that I'm picking up are kind of ahead of the, the, the research. It's not published information and data, but Frances Healy, with all that I've learned, she really makes a lot of sense. And I'm gonna read you one quote that I, that, oh, I had to write it down because I can't remember this verbatim, but she's brilliant. And one of the things that she says is that one, um, one thing that organizations need to realize is that for fall prevention, if we are chasing zero, if our goal is zero, that this can only be achieved by an unacceptable restriction on a patient's privacy, dignity, and autonomy. So I want to get you to be rethinking your thoughts about falls because it's not that we're trying to prevent all falls, we're trying to prevent injury from falls and injury from immobility. And when we started down this course, it's like we cut off the word immobility from what we were trying to prevent and we only focused on falls and we've created a problem. Um, we have uh, created a situation where patients aren't um, being kept from falling and they're losing their ability to walk when they're in the hospital with us. So some gaps that I've observed in the field um, is an over-reliance on a risk score and using non-evidence-based interventions. And they're the, and the common interventions like bed alarms, uh, yellow socks, signage on the doors. There's not evidence that really shows that these things work, but they are widely used in hospitals. And in general, the bundle for a high-risk patient is one that limits their mobilization. So I think that that's really the crux of why we're not making progress. And I think another, um, another reason is that we, we have lack of individualized care planning. I think it was easier in the olden days um, for the older nurses when we used to have care plans and we used to actually write them out and we'd have a problem and a plan. The EHR has just made that so much more complicated. Um, it's harder to retrieve information. It's harder to, um, the fall care planning, I know Epic is building fall care planning into their systems, but most of the other systems don't. Um, and so you're just doing a high risk bundle is what a lot of the, the hospitals are doing. And then lastly, um, I think about CAUTI and CLABSI, and we have our um, infection control practitioners going around and doing audits and spot checks on you know, who's got a catheter and why do they have it. And we do a lot of monitoring on the front end that we have our process measures in place. But um, with falls, we tend to be focusing more on the back side that once a fall occurs, that's when we start checking on our process measures and how we can have a good plan to prevent this patient from falling. So these are some of the things that, that I see as intelligence that's kind of informing some of the thoughts that I'm sharing with you today. So the HRAT HIN, um, as I said, has 1,600 hospitals. And so 
When we were looking at where we are and where we need to go, we decided to take the stop to start approach to focus on what we need to stop doing and replace them with things that we could start doing. And the reason why we're doing a stop to start approach is that as we are working on this improvement work, it keeps growing. The scope of this improvement work that CMS is funding, that Medicare is funding, keeps getting bigger and bigger. It started out with a voluntary, you know, just work on whatever you want. And then we started expecting hospitals to gather teams and work on 11 topics simultaneously. And then we kept adding topics. And now I've got malnutrition as a new topic, and I'm excited about that. But they realized they can't just keep adding on, that we've got to figure out how to be able to take on the work but not add more burden. So if we keep adding on interventions, we're only our backpacks are going to be so heavy that we won't be able to do our work. Um, so we want to figure out what we need to stop doing before we figure out adding anything new. So that's that's been our approach. So we replace the stops with starts. Um, you you have access to links to this document which have the evidence and every. Um, piece of evidence that I'm citing has a full free article um, and then resources that go with each of the, um, the recommendations. So I want to start by busting some myths. Okay. So there's no evidence that care is differentiated just based on a signage alone. So there's got to be more than just a sign or a wristband because when staff are observed, they're not treating patients differently because of the wristband or the colored socks or the colored gowns. There's got to be more. There's got to be more information that's got to be discussed in the handoff. Um, and I see verbal communication is really the king here. Next fact is that score-based bundles aren't effective. And uh, to, the, uh, to the opposite, interventions that are tailored to the patient's risk factors, that's when we start to see improvements. Um, and, and this is one of Francis Healy's quotes, that it's senseless to gather information about a risk factor if you're not going to do anything about it. So if, you, if I have a patient who is a, a risk uh, uh, fall risk for 25, let's say you're a 25 because you're on a, a med that alters your, um, your mental status, and you're a 25 because you have a gait disturbance, I don't want to give you guys both the same bundle because you have a, a problem walking. Let's focus on your walking and make sure you've got adaptive equipment, and let's make sure that we have a pharmacist look at your meds to see if we can minimize them. Let's not just say, let's put a bed alarm on you and keep you in bed because you're at high risk for falling. If you're going to gather the information, let's do something about it. Um, all falls aren't equal. Unassisted, as a circumstance, when we're with the patient, um, when we're not with the patient, that's the number one attribute of injury. So when we're with patients, if, if they fall, they generally are not injured. So somehow, I just want you to start thinking about assisted falls that don't see this as, oh my god, we had another fall on the unit. Because if you had someone with that patient and you were attempting to mobilize them and they weren't hurt, this isn't the same as the patient that's getting up unattended and, um, and is seeking um, something that we're not providing. So um, let's, let's not treat that quite as seriously. We need to face the fact, and this is the, my, my 
charge uh, for action is that forced immobility is causing harm. You know, I think about this gentleman, and if he were in a hospital and maybe spent a couple of weeks in the ICU and then a week out on med surge, and we were really concerned about him falling, and let's say this was a victory. This man did not have a fall, and we did not have any reportable major injury, but the only problem is, is that he can't walk. Now, I think that should be reportable. If someone comes in walking and they can't walk when they leave and they were under our care, you're smiling. You, do you agree with me? It seems so simple, but it's not so simple. But, uh, but it happens because we've been keeping patients in bed to keep them safe. Um, so uh, it can happen in as little as two days that patients can lose their ability to walk. There was a, um, a study that was just published fairly new, 2015, and it was a systematic review of 14 studies on delirium and falls. And guess what? Falls is highly correlated to, to um, delirium. And interventions that address delirium can reduce the chance of falling. And guess what the number one intervention is to prevent delirium? Mobility. <laughs> So if we just do one thing, one thing. So this is catching on because it is, you'll see, I'll share with you what progressive mobility can do for your organization. If we just focus on one thing as an organization, we could do a lot of good. So I'm, I, I don't want to get on my soapbox too much on the fat alarms, but there's a good study by Shore, and they just really made those nurses follow those guidelines on the, on the, on the bed alarms, and it did not cause any improvement. Um, Non-compliance is overused. I think we, I, I see these conversations going on where patients, um, the reason why the patient fell was that they didn't call for help or family members didn't turn the call bell or the uh, bed alarm back on. And um, I think we have to get past that because the research um, by these two researchers show that um, elders, they believe that fall prevention is important, but they don't believe it applies to them. So it's, it's I, yes, I know it's important, but that's really more important for Mary Catherine because I'm actually quite capable of walking and I'm not going to fall. And they also, um, patients tend to overestimate our ability to keep them safe. So they really don't get it that they're at risk for being harmed. Um, but uh, to the contrary, when we provide structured education to cognitively intact patients, we can reduce falls significantly. In one study with oncology patients, that's the Li, uh, Li Chi Hang. This was in China, though, and it was a single-site study. They had no patients fell after they had structured education. And Haynes is a rehab um, article, a rehab study with 4,000 patients. And they had a 60% reduction in falls when they took the time to explain to the patient what, um, what their risk factors were and what could happen if they were to fall. So I've been, I've been chanting this message here um, today as well that um, hospitals that engage leaders and all staff accelerate results. Um, I hear that you've got a good no-pass zone policy that, that everyone will respond to call lights. And I think that that's really important, that all staff are trained and they're comfortable. Um, and I think leadership really has a responsibility to create a safe environment. So if you're seeing tripping hazards, um, if you're seeing thresholds that are a tripping hazard um, for you and your patients, if you don't have adequate safety frames, that's 
structural pieces that leadership needs to know. If you don't have those things, we've got to get them for you. And it's really exciting, I think, as the future, um, as we're building new construction and doing um, rehabbing of units, I think there's going to be more emphasis on keeping the environment safe and clutter-free um, to prevent injuries from falls. Some of the things we see happening are, are grab bars from the bed um, to the bathroom to help the patient to ambulate safely. And we know th these are all the things that frontline staff do, but I feel like Whenever we're trying to make improvements, all we do is we talk to this side of the equation and we're not so much talking to this side. So now what? We can stop focusing on preventing all falls. Let's focus on preventing injuries from falls because some patients, if they were to fall, um, could be much more seriously injured. Um, the VA system has the ABCS. System, and this is something that Mary Catherine's looking into. Um, and the risk screening is age over 85, of bone disease, coagulation, if they're on blood thinners, and if they've been, had surgery. If a patient with that criteria were to fall, that would, could be a devastating injury. It, may, it could possibly be a lot more serious than a minor injury. Um, so this is something that hospitals can use to segment their population because as we try to prevent falls for all patients, um, it's overwhelming. There's not a magic bullet that I can say that this is the bundle that will, pro that will keep all falls from all patients. But if we can prioritize patients that have these criteria, perhaps might be the highest priority for protective measures, like floor mats. Is anyone using floor mats in this organization? So we're seeing a couple years ago, no floor mats in, in acute care, and we're starting to see more uptake of the floor mats for the patients that are at risk for injury. So um, we talked about leadership um, actions, and leadership's responsible for helping us look and sift through the data. So one of the exercises I often ask um, a hospital to, to take is to look at their falls with injuries and look at what type of injuries you're having and what types of patients are being injured. And maybe floor mats for a certain patient population could be helpful if you've got elders that are falling out of bed. Um, and the, the floor mats do reduce the impact and can prevent a fracture. And let's start focusing on learning and preventing unassisted falls. Remember, assisted falls, rehab will like this. We know that, that mobility isn't going to make all falls go away, but we can, we can make um, injuries from falls go away. But if we're focusing on unassisted falls, the bathroom is really a hotbed for injuries. So um, having clear expectations about who needs to have at arm's length supervision in the bathroom versus who can have um, a door and a foot in the door to keep the patient off the floor is something uh, an Arkansas hospital taught me. Um, but I think some patients require a hand on their shoulder or at least to be able to reach them if they were to lose their balance. And um, scheduling um, toileting for patients needing assistance. We, we talked with um, LNAs this morning um, at 10 a.m. 
And um, one of them talked about just a routine every time with every patient. Why don't we um, go to the bathroom before your meal comes or before you go for your walk? Why don't we go to the bathroom? So that in her, I like what she added was that so you're not rushing on your way back when if you have to go. So she was responding to that potential urgency. Okay, so. Stop relying on a fall risk score for action. So I gave the example of, you know, people could have risks that are um, very different, but they could come up, they could have the same score. Um, so we want to think beyond the score, and we want to think about that unique individual, that unique patient and what they bring, what capabilities do they bring to the table, and what limitations do they have. Think about this, this this couple. They probably have uh, probably pretty good footsteps <laughs> and some good balance that we might be able to use. And if we appreciate what they're bringing and work with them, um, I think that we can we can do a lot better than just telling patients don't call, don't fall. And I don't want to diss the bundle completely because universal bundles do address accidental falls. And this is just basic. Everyone should have this. And we've been, we've been talking a lot about footwear um, the last couple of days. And there's a, been a movement um, to say, you know, non-skid double-sided socks are great, but they're not the best for walking. You put a patient in a sturdy shoe, and they're going to be a lot better walking. So um, when people say, well, we've got double-sided slippers, I say, oh, big deal. <laughs> Do you, some hospitals are giving patients shoes now. They're keeping shoes and material services with Velcro. Oh, and family um, education, uh, patient and family education with Teach Back. Everybody needs to have that. Stop relying on the score again. And this is just some advice. When you think about, if you, if you want to start uh, looking at individualizing care, don't try to do it for everybody. Think about this. This little patient population here, if there was one man you'd want to do your interventions for, it's probably this guy in the middle here. Because we're not going to say individualized care planning. Maybe, maybe you can't bite that off with every patient in your hospital. You probably can't. But who's your most vulnerable? So think about that. It could be patients admitted for a fall. I see that as a big gap out there. Patients are admitted with an injury for a fall and... It tends to get lost in translation when they're up on the floor. I'd love to see that patient. If he had a fall at home, could we have a home uh, evaluation before he goes home again to make sure that he doesn't fall? Okay, so you could use your high risk for injury patients um, to segment or a known faller. I've had one hospital said that they had a, a really problematic patient. They just focused on that one patient and just focused on let's individualize care for this one patient. This is just an example of a tool that is fairly new um, that was developed by Patricia Dykes at Brigham and Young um, Women and Children's Hospital. And it combines the Morse uh, risk um, elements, but they don't give a score. For each um, risk factor, they check off a intervention or circle an intervention that's color-coded. And they do this with the patient, which is cool. 
they laminate these signs and they keep them at the bedside and they do this. Um, they run through what the patient's risk factors are and what the interventions are and they do that with the patient. And they've had some really good results with um, elderly patients. And that's in your, um, in the Stop to Start document. There's resources on the school. We want to start supporting the patient's highest level of mobility at least three times a day. Up in chairs for meals walking to the toilet and in the room. I've seen a lot of uh, beach chair or chair positioning. I'm in the ICU when I attended mobility rounds today. So um, what we're starting to see hospitals do is to look at who can we, um, who can we bring into the mobility team? Can we get transporters trained to be mobilizers? Can, if a, if a person has a sitter for um, agitation or cognitive impairments, could that sitter be ambulating with the patient rather than keeping them safe in bed? Which is, at least in practice in my past organizations, they just asked the patient to stay in bed and kept reminding them to stay in bed when this person could actually be walking the patient and helping them get better. We're going to stop telling patients what to do, calling them non-compliant and naming the fam family as the problem and really start engaging partners and uh, them as partners in safe mobilization. Okay. okay, so you've heard a lot of stops and starts. I'm gonna talk a little bit about progressive mobility. Um, but before I get into that, any thoughts or comments? I'll, I'll stop talking for just a moment. What are you thinking? You've had some smiles on your face. <laughs> Where do you work? 2S. 2S, and what kind of a unit is that? So we're urology and Okay. Like a medical floor, not ICU? Right. Okay. So we've got some really great things going on with ICU mobility here. Um, and I think one of the challenges is how do we get this to be the culture on all of our units um, on our medical units and and um, and just move towards that culture of mobility. And I'm going to share with you um, the the outcomes and the benefits of this. Um, and it's part of an up campaign that we're using with the HR um, HRET as that call to action from CMS to reduce burden and bring joy to our work. Um, we believe that. Um, uh, I'm skipping by this. We talked about this. I want to get to progressive mobility. Okay. So um, we have an up campaign that we're working on um, that we are disseminating actually with the HRAT HIN. And there's four components of it. It is um, wake up, which is avoiding over sedation and getting patients um, awake and alert so that we can get them up. Um, and get up is progressive mobility. Um, soap up is hand washing because that will help us with all of our um, hospital acquired infections. And then script up is about appropriate medication use. The reason why we're clustering these interventions is that if certain interventions like progressive mobility can do awesome things for an organization and for your patients. By focusing on progressive mobility, 
I keep apologizing, this is supposed to say falls with injury, because falls might still occur when we're mobilizing patients, but we will reduce our falls with injury, pressure injuries. Um, uh, the ICU, the trauma unit, their last prevalence study, zero for the quarter. They've, they had no um, hospital-acquired pressure injuries, and they've got some really acute patients, but they're all being mobilized. It'll prevent your delirium, your caudies, your ventilator-associated events. ETE, readmissions, and it improves worker safety. Um, I've seen hospitals um, reduce their length of stay um, with progressive mobility. And when I think about the crunch that you're in today with your volume, if every one of your patients or 75% of them had been mobilized three times a day, your length of stay might be down by a day and you probably wouldn't have borders in your ED. So it's really simple. And when we think about progressive mobility, this is not a physical therapy thing. Physical therapists need to see physical therapy level patients that require their, their expertise as a therapist. If a patient was walking this morning and they came in, or let's say it's, tomorrow, it's Friday. The patient comes in on a Friday afternoon. It's one of these two. And they had been walking, um, but uh, they were admitted. We do not want to wait for physical therapy to evaluate this patient on Monday. We do not need the skill of a physical therapist to assess this patient. Um, so we, we really want to think about how can we reduce workload on our units by keeping our patients functionally capable. How do we get them up to walk to the bathroom? How do we get them up to, when they get up in the morning, to go to the bathroom and wash their face and brush their teeth? That's going to prevent delirium and then put them in their chair. Now, this does take a little bit more uh, planning and it takes more manpower, but the, the benefits are, um, are phenomenal, and I'll share some case studies with you. But progressive mobility is moving the patient from where they are and trying to get them to their, um, their, their baseline, where they were before they um, came into the hospital. And so we're starting with very small, um, small, purposeful movements, elevating the head of the bed, manual turning, and some active and passive range of motion until we're getting the patient to be um, sitting in a chair position, dangling, and then um, ambulating, and then ultimately ambulating outside their, their room. So for each of the up campaigns, we have three must-dos. So the, the get-up must-dos, the first one is if, if you walked in, Walk during and walk out. We don't need a physical therapist if you can't, no, no offense to physical therapy, because I'm thinking physical therapy stewardship. I want you to be taking care of the right patients that need your care. And if this gentleman was out walking with his, daughter, his granddaughter the day before he had an event, let's keep him walking every day so when he leaves the hospital, he can continue to hike in uneven surfaces and, and, and have quality of his life. I don't want to have him have a setback because we didn't get him up and walk. Um, this is my favorite lady. This lady's name is Ida, and I, can't, I don't know why, but I can't think of her last name. She is, um, if you Google elite 100-year-old athlete, you'll find her. She started running when she was 65 years old after something happened with her brother. Um, and she's a little cocky, because when she's done with her 100-yard dash, she does some push-ups. <laughs> but I love this image, because I think we, we, we use ageism 
quite often we see someone who's frail and we think that they are going to um, that they're going to be weak. And I'll bet you if if Ida came to your floor in a gown and groggy and coughing with pneumonia, you'd probably make an assumption that, ooh, we better not let Ida get up because she's probably too weak and she might fall and she might like sock you in the gut if you try to give her a bed alarm. But uh, the point here is don't don't assume. Um, use the uh, the get up and go test or the BMAT test to assess ambulation skills. This is actually a picture from a Chicago newspaper from last year. And the caption was, is that the nurse is using the get up and go test to assess mobility and to keep her patient walking while in the hospital. So ha this is happening. We are starting to take on mobility. And um, hospitals are bragging about using the, this is a really complicated test, the get up and go test. You get up from a chair and you walk three yards and you turn around and you go back and you observe the patient's gait or you may have to support the patient and walk with them, but do that instead of just assess what they can do when they're in bed. Get them up. This is the BMAT, the Banner Mobility Assessment Tool for nurses and I know that you already have an assessment um, with five levels of mobility, but it's important to have um, your mobility levels to have a common language so that when nursing and therapy are talking, we're all talking the same language. Another um, common language, this is all therapy language. Um, and I take this for granted because I was a rehab nurse, but the, this has actually, what, eight different levels of independence depending on how much the patient contributes and how much the nurse contributes. Ne the next must-do is having mobility devices available to staff and patients. And I understand that here you have um, walkers in patient rooms to, to support um, mobility. Um, many hospitals are using gate belts in every room. Um, and certainly gate belts are, are very valuable in controlling the patient's center of balance um, so that they don't have a fall. Um, one of my points that I'd like to make here is I think I've got it here, yeah. That hospitals are starting to integrate their safe patient handling teams and their mobility teams and their training. So if you've got safe patient handling training that happens on a regular basis, it usually is focused on this body of knowledge about lifting and keeping, uh, keeping yourself safe, um, assisting in bed activities, how to avoid friction and shear. Because I think a lot of staff injuries are from pulling patients and doing bed mobility. Um, and when we integrate the safe patient handling and the mobility training, it can really help us promote mobility um, in the organization. It's a way, it's a new way of thinking about things rather than adding on. Can we put, integrate these two teams? Okay, the last must do is three laps a day keeps the nursing home away. And there's not scientific evidence about three laps. Um, because who knows what three laps are in any, in any unit. Um, but the point here is that we want mobility to be regular, and it's got to be measured. Um, this is another photo from a Chicago newspaper, and this is a volunteer ambulating to patients. And um, I like the, the image because um, I like to tell the story that hospitals are publicizing that they're doing this, but I, I just don't like that they don't have gate belts on or anything. And, you don't have sturdy shoes, but they're, they're up and they're walking and they're happy. 
Um, so um, there is a model called um, Project Help. It's run by Sharon Inouye. She's a geriatrician. And she is passionate about mobility as well. And her project is called Hospital Elder Life Program. And it is um, about preventing delirium through mobility. And their project uses trained volunteers to mobilize patients. It's a, um, to join the project, um, hospitals do have to pay a fee to join, but they get the training and they get a help coordinator. Um, I'm not saying that you need to sign up and be a help site, but this model, she does use volunteers, and she just published a mobility change package based on 14 hospitals that implemented progressive mobility in their organizations with their lessons learned and their tools. So there's competency checklists for um, the volunteers. Um, so that, I don't know if that is in the stop to start, because that's a very new I think it is in the stop to start. It's a very new document. Here's a couple of best practices that I've seen um, in hospitals. This is a surgical unit in which the hospital, the patients put their magnets on the, on the board to indicate how far they walked. And what happens is that nurses then put little sticky notes and they cheer their patients on. Um, and so it becomes a little message board for mobility. Um, and then this is a, um, I stole this from a hospital that was struggling with how do we document and know how many patients are getting up. And so many hospitals do this on their whiteboard that they'll put down, you know, check three times that we did the ambulation. But then when you erase it, it's gone. So I had a hospital that has someone um, put this, these up every morning and then they take them down at night so that the manager has some data on how many patients are getting up. Because I think it's important as you're trying to drive improvement, you've got to document and track it. And then if you find that you're not able to hit your goals, what are the barriers and what do we need to do to effectively mobilize patients? So um, there's, there's research about missed care um, in nursing, and I, I believe that a study was just conducted on this campus that mirrors um, the results of um, Dr. Um, Doherty King. And when she did a survey of missed care, mobility was the number one missed care. It's easy to be omitted because it sometimes isn't noticed unless you're a surgeon. I think the surgeons are really keen into it. But um, you know, some of the, the reasons in this study were the nursing perceptions were lack of time, it was easy to omit, and a belief that it's physical therapy's responsibility. <coughs> and um, the nurses were co genuinely concerned about the patients, the presence of devices, and, and lack of staff to assist. So there's some real issues and perceptions that we have to overcome. Um, and uh, you know, we've got to face the facts that if we're going to support mobility on the nursing units, it can't just be a nursing function. I think the hospitals that I see um, working really well, um, we have physician champions that really help to drive it, or we have a physical therapy champion that's driving it. But um, in many cases, we're seeing mobility techs being brought into the skill mix. Um, if you're looking to recruit a physician champion, this is a brand new article that just came out a couple weeks, maybe a month ago, um, on what hospitalists can do to help us with um, curbing bed rest. I'm not going to get into um, 
Well, I guess I just have a couple slides on uh, prevent, manage delirium. And I know that this is actively going on in, in your ICUs, um, assessing for um, delirium. Um, but the, the interventions that really work the best for, um, for uh, I'm going to flip to the non-pharmacological um, activities. These are the activities that can lead to a 62% reduction um, in falls. Um, and that was based on the systematic review. Um, so things that were important, um, and this was in um, all the studies that had improvement, was the importance of the environment, having the lights on, the shades up, making sure patients have their glasses on and their hearing aids in so that they can hear and see. They're getting up and walking three times a day. Um, they're having stimulating activities, and we're not just turning the TV on with, for um, white noise in the background, but um, having an appreciation for what the patient's hobbies are and perhaps tuning, if they're a golf addict, to tune into golf for that patient so that it's something that's a little bit more stimulating. And, I, and this was from a med surge, um, this tool. Um, this tool is from a med surge unit, but all these items were in that study that I cited. But um, on this med surge unit, they have a routine where in the morning, patients get up, they go into the bathroom, and they brush their teeth, and they wash their face, and then they're up for breakfast. Um, and I think that this is something that we really need to spread to our elders um, on our medical floors to keep them sharp and keep them bright um, so that we can keep their minds clear and out of harm's way. And then sleep hygiene. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of literature out there on this yet, so I don't have references, but I do know that lots of hospitals are focusing on sleep hygiene. And this is from Concord Hospital. They have um, volunteers put together a little sleep hygiene kit with lavender and um, uh, earplugs and some scented lotion and, and, and iPads. And doing some back rubs. I mean, this is kind of going back to old school, but spending a few minutes helping that patient kind of get into um, their bedtime routine rather than taking away that, in, that personal, personal routine that they have, trying to honor that um, as a way to um, support our patients. Okay. Okay, so I... Um, <coughs> I want to share with you a case study, and I didn't include this in my slides, but um, and I can include them when I share them with you. But um, and I shared these yesterday. Um, a couple case studies. Um, I think I have it on this computer. And I'm trying to spread, and I need um, I need more case studies to spread because I, we really need to end the the epidemic of immobility. And one of the case studies is a, um, a hospital in Michigan City, Indiana, which is pretty much in my backyard. Um, so I'm fortunate. Um, it's the hospital that I use, but it, it, they just happened to bubble up. We were working on a progressive mobility um, event, and we were actually working with um, Dr. Needham and at Duke. Is he at Duke? John Hopkins. So he was on the event, and then this woman, Brooke, from this community hospital. And she has a med surge mobility program, and he talked about his ICU mobility program. And she was like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm with 
Dr. Needham, he's the rock star. She, um, she was really thrilled, but she has a, a, a project um, uh, in her community hospital. It's about a, they run about a census of about 100, and they had a campaign to create a culture of mobility. So they trained everybody, all nursing staff, on mobility. So they didn't say that this was only going to be the mobility text that would mobilize patients. They educated everybody. I don't know if the nurses got four or eight hours of training, but they all got the training. So that was a big investment um, in the training. But then they took three nursing assistants and they elevated them to mobility techs. And they cover um, a shift that's like, um, 10 in the morning until 6 at night, and they cover seven days a week between three of them. So you've got three FTEs. They have had, um, I've got their results here. They have had, I, I know it by heart. It'll take me too long to pull it up. Uh, but I can show you the slide. They had a 70% reduction in pressure injuries. That's why I was asking about pressure injuries on your ICU unit because they're actively mobilizing patients and they saw this dramatic reduction even though they might be using lifts to put patients in, in chairs and patients are sitting in chairs for extended periods of time. The fact that they're not in bed has been a great benefit. Um, so they've had a 70% reduction in pressure injuries. They've had a, I think it was a 39% reduction in discharge to sniff. And they had a 43% reduction in readmissions for the whole house because patients were stronger when they were leaving. This is with three nursing assistants, LNAs, transformed a hospital. Plus everybody was trained. So. It's had such an impact that they're starting to spread it to other hospitals in the system. And then John Hopkins, I, they're um, one of the uh, hospitals on my case study, and they had like a 1.1 reduction in their ICU length of stay and I think like a 2.1 reduction in their overall hospital length of stay. So mobilizing patients can help. You know, I, when I think about what you're going through right now with capacity and the fact that you're so busy and you're full, if we were able to move patients through the system quicker by keeping them mobile, that might be able to solve your capacity issues if we can help to reduce that length of stay a little bit. So if you're thinking about like, how do we build a business case for this? I think this is a perfect time to be thinking about, um, you know, how do we resource in a way that we can make sure that patients are reliably um, Mobilized, and we've got a model. We've got a great model going in the trauma unit, and then we've got the um, the third floor um, on the ortho unit. Um, so it would be interesting to look at those results that you're seeing, and and if it's time to spread that to more units. So I'd, I'd welcome questions and thoughts about what you would stop or and start doing on your unit. That was the kind of the challenge I put out there, or thought or hope that you'd come away with something that you might stop and start. i got to stop talking. I just have a quick question. Yeah. The um, situation you just mentioned with the three LNAs who were hired for that hospital system, is that in the literature? They haven't published it yet. But um, I, I have connected Brooke with other um, hospitals, and she's been willing to talk. She actually was in China sharing, uh, or Japan, sharing her results. 
So I know she's getting ready to publish, and she's really, really, really excited about it and is probably would be willing to share. Yeah. I was actually trying to, um, there was a hospital in Tennessee that was wanting to do a site visit out there, and she was all ready and willing, um, but the hospital just hasn't been able to um, get it together yet. But uh, she's at the point where, yeah, she'd like to share and, and help others and, and spread these best practices. What other questions or comments do y'all have? So other case studies, you have a question, comment? tried this a couple times and it's now a grassroots effort coming from the, the nursing staff and the rehab staff um, but it feels like there's a lot of barriers if there is not managerial buy-in. Yes. True managerial support and buy-in um, despite all the evidence that we might give. So I think that that's, that's a huge piece. If the floor manager is truly buying into the importance of this and you get the support for that and the time that it takes to educate everybody at staff meetings or what have you, then much more likely to be successful. And I, I, I admire the work that you're doing, but then what did I say to Mary Catherine? I said, is that sustainable? What if right. you were go on vacation exactly. or you are not here anymore? And it would have to be, I would think, another you, or it would have to be the nurse manager would have to become the champion because that's what's driving it right now. And I feel like our, our CVCC has a culture that of mobility. It's just what they do, and it's, a, it's maybe a little easier because it's more of a universal patient population on a pathway. Okay. But it's the culture on that floor. You get As a new nurse coming in, I think you get oriented to this is what we do. And so how do we get to the point that eventually, I, I suspect it would take a couple years of us doing this before it gets enculturated. But, and I know other facilities have said that. You know, there's the initial drivers, but until it's a, people are accountable to do the things that we want them to do and then if I, if I step out, somebody else can step in. You're right. That's the part of sustainability where our initial efforts with this in another ICU didn't work because we didn't have, it never became accountable culture. And you've got nursing partners that are helping hold their peers accountable. Right. And that seems Hugely like important. Piece, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you've got grassroots. So there's different ways that people do this. Um, there have been, I met a hospital that they said the nursing directors are completely accountable for their budgets. And if they decided to run a pilot with mobility aids, they were just going to do it, not ask for permission, but go ahead and do it and then say, this is what we got. Um, so, and then there's the grassroots efforts that you're doing, and then there's other efforts where you say, um, this, this is the return on investment. Can we at least pilot the adoption of this role for a short period of time and see where it goes and see where it takes our patient satisfaction? Oh, St. Um, Franciscan, St. Uh, I always call them the wrong name, Franciscan, Michigan City, they had a 45% reduction in nursing turnover also. <laughs> and, re and reduction in worker nice, injuries and worker injuries.
pick up on what we're doing. Yeah. But sorry, everyone can hear me okay. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So the staff, you know, consistent staff definitely makes a difference. So when I think about bringing joy back to work and I think about progressive mobility and I think about patients ambulating the halls um, and having the support, the, the resource to ambulate the patients because I don't want to talk out of turn but I think one of the things we're trying to be pra practical and thoughtful about is we can't just keep adding on to a nurse's task list without taking something away or, you know, there is a business case to resource this. For Pete's sake, I see hospitals that have um, valets, and I wonder how much wrangling it took to get valets, FTEs. And yet, when we want to mobilize patients, we are like, oh my gosh, how could we get the authority to get these three FTEs? Um, I'd like to find out how they get the valets. <laughs> Because I think that might be the CFOs that are running those services, and they're like, this is a no-brainer. Of course we're going to do this. So I think there's all different ways, and maybe you go about it at all of the ways, but I know leadership has heard the message in, in, in many of these talks, and they're asking, can I get more information about the, these case studies? And I'd be happy to share those with all of you as well, the details, and hook you up with Brooke, who's doing a fabulous job. And um, I was at Orlando uh, Medical in January, and they took their transport team, and they trans transformed them into safe patient handling and mobility aids. So they, they're cross-functional but they just repurposed a team. And they, they um, I don't know if we have results that we can share yet because it's pretty early for them, but they say that they've got the best job in the house and they actually serenade the patients. They sing to the patients while they're walking them. Now, in the hallway, so if you think that doesn't transform a culture, pretty amazing. I'm sorry about that. This is the per the person that calls with one of those automated voices. Hi, it's Kathy. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't turn that off. So, <sighs> oh. any other thoughts? We're at almost at the top of the hour. We are at the top of the hour. Well, I want to thank everybody for being here. Um, this has really been very um, energizing for me to be with you all and to see that this is important to your organization. So please don't hesitate to reach out. I've got um, on the, the slide presentation, there's links and resources um, that are included. But I'm just a phone call or an email away. And um, I love collecting tools and resources and things I can share. So please don't hesitate to reach out. You have to register to get it, but don't get freaked out. You just have to put your name in. They just want to keep track of who's getting it. The download. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it.